Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Matthew Hominick. It was undeniable how loud I was crying. <laughs> the instructor was forced to stop her international prayer. <laughs> and address it that and more but before that it's january 2020 you know the year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction sort of stories a lot of people predicted by now we'd be teleporting to work or uh, living on mars a lot of those predictions didn't end up right the truth is we'll always be predicting parts of the future wrong which is why you need to get life insurance right that's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more per year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. So, if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged or discouraged, get life insurance. It just takes a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. Also, most New Year's resolutions are hard to keep. Getting more exercise, saving more money, 
Here's a resolution that's easy to keep, though. Stop wasting time going to the post office. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can do anything you do at the post office right from your own computer. All the services of the U.S. Postal Service from simply using your own computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, you just hand it to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox it's that simple with stamps.com you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40 percent off priority mail it's a no-brainer no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com so give yourself a resolution you can actually keep this year stop going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead there's no risk with our promo code RISK, which gets you the special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts, just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's stamps.com, the promo code is RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross behind me now. This is our first episode of 2020, and I'll tell you something, folks. We're calling this episode Rebuilding. Uh, These are all stories that have that idea in mind, but I'll tell you, you know, I remember when 9-11 happened. I said out loud to myself a couple days after it happened, I said, oh my gosh, there's so much destruction around that it's time for me to focus on creation, you know, in, in the hopes that creation can sometimes counterbalance destruction. So that is what we're here to keep doing on the show. By the way, this reminds me, if you're in Los Angeles and you want to give this storytelling thing a try, David Crabb is one of our very favorite storytellers and the host and producer of the Risk Show out in LA. But he's also teaching a class, a two-day class in storytelling for people who, you know, you could be a total newcomer or have some experience with it. That is in Los Angeles. You have to go to thestorystudio.org and look for the in-person workshops in Los Angeles to find where you can sign up for the class. Let's get started here. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Ashton Cynthia Clark, a story that she workshopped with David Crabb in Los Angeles. But before that, we're going to hear from Matthew Hominick, a story he shared at the Risk Live show in New York City that we do once a month. The next one of those will be on January 23rd. 
But let's get to Matthew Hominick, who you can find on Instagram at Hominick. <laughs> Here he is now with a story we call To Give a Fuck. I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot of this luxury gym with impeccable landscaping in a wealthy New Jersey suburb. And I'm watching the sprinklers water mostly the parking lot. (laughs) This is the kind of gym that you join when you want people to know that you're better than them. (laughs) And I hadn't slept at all the night before and I got to that gym early because I wanted to be anywhere but my home. The sun was just starting to come up when I got an email from my ex-fiance's father. And I read this email, and I shook my head, and I headed into the gym. Now, I joined this gym because I'd just been through a breakup, and one of my buddies told me that, well, there were a lot of hot girls in the yoga class. So yoga is very physically demanding, but I'd argue that it's actually more mentally taxing because you've got to control your thoughts the whole time. And I had, had a rough couple of days and controlling my thoughts was going to be a war. I was the first person in this yoga class, so I took the spot right in front of the, where the instructor was going to set up because I figured like that was the least creepy place to set up. And the studio was warm and it smelled the lavender and there was Enya playing softly. And as this class starts to fill up, there's a, there's a couple cougars, there's some younger girls, which is a good mix for me because I'm newly single and I don't even know what I like. And the instructor comes over to me and in this mystical voice, she asks me for my name, asks me if I've ever done yoga before, and asks me if there's any injuries that she should know about. And she's got curly, curly blonde hair, and she's probably in her 50s, and she's weirdly strong. (laughs) Like, the kind of strong that make you think that she lived in the woods alone for a period of time. (laughs) So this class gets underway, and we're flowing through our first vinyasa, and I'm in downward dog, and my mind drifts to uh, the day before I had to call the pastor that was going to perform the ceremony to tell him that the wedding was off. And he had been my preschool teacher, and he was so excited for this ceremony that he had come out of retirement for it. So I called him, and I said, hey, Pastor, um, I know you came out of retirement for this, but the wedding's off. And he came back at me hard, and he said, Matt, there is nothing you can't work through. And I said, oh, yeah? (laughs) She was cheating on me with two guys. Do you think we can work through that? And he said, well, Matt, some things you just can't work through. <laughs> so so I'm, uh, I'm going from warrior one into warrior two. And I start, I start thinking about uh, a week before I had to make that call, I had been a groomsman at my buddy Jim's wedding. And she looked amazing that night. We danced and drank all night danced and drank too much, and I carried her off to bed. I got her out of that beautiful dress, 
put her in her jam jams. I tucked her in, I got her some water. When it suddenly occurred to me that I had to take a shit. Like right now. So I grabbed my phone, but my phone was dead. So I grabbed her iPad and I run into the bathroom. Juventus had played Barcelona in the Champions League final earlier that day and I was watching the highlights when a text comes in from her boss. The text from her boss at 2 a.m. was weird, but I trusted her. She was gonna be my wife. We went to high school together and years after high school we met, we met, we ran into each other in a local bar and started dating. And people were genuinely surprised when they saw us together, but I didn't care what they thought. Her friends told her that she wasn't deserving of a guy like me. And I told her that she was, and she shouldn't listen to them, because I thought she was amazing. And there had been great times. But recently, there had been a few nights that she came home very late and told me that she was just out having too much fun with a girlfriend. And then another text comes in. And then another. Three texts at 2 a.m. from her boss. It was out of the ordinary. So I opened him. And it was him telling her about how hard he was gonna fuck her and where. With all these purple devil emojis. <laughs> so I'm scrolling through these texts, sitting on the toilet, watching my life unravel. And the worst part is, she's telling him about how much she can't stand me. How much she hates my friends. How much she dislikes this life that we created. And I find myself and I'm holding a side plank with sweat pouring down my face. And I'm back in that hotel room. And I woke her up. I asked her if she could explain these texts. She couldn't. I took the ring from her, I grabbed my things, and I left. A few days later, we met to talk. And she told me that it had never gotten physical with that guy. But it had gotten physical with another guy. And she wanted me to know that she had no intentions of telling me or stopping. She asked me if I'd take her back. I said no. I hugged her and I wished her well and I said goodbye. I'm in uh, tree pose. <laughs> and I lose my next mind battle. And I started thinking about that email that her dad sent me. In it, he told me that I needed to put my ego to the side and do what is right. I hadn't slept in days, and the night before was no exception. And part of how I occupied myself was I did laundry. And I even did her laundry, because I knew she was gonna be out of clothes. Ego to the side, ego to the side. A couple hours ago, I was folding your daughter's underwear, and you got the nerve to tell me that I need to put my ego to the side? After some failed attempts at uh, crow pose and headstands and actively ignoring these purple devil emojis that were seared into my eyelids, this class starts to mercifully come to an end. And the instructor directs us to lay on our side in the fetal position and she's gonna lead us in a prayer. And that's not for me. So I'm sitting on my butt, my hands are on my knees, listening to the instructor talk about intentions and mindfulness. And my mind goes off to my living room. 
his living room used to be full all the time with friends and family and have parties and celebrations. And it was now empty, except for the two folding chairs and the nightstand that I was using as a dining room table since she moved out. This room was so bare that my buddy Joey that I wrestled with in high school told me on the golf course while taking practice swings that I really needed to do something about my furniture situation because, man, it is depressing. <laughs> I told him that I was aware it was depressing because I live there. <laughs> and I'm sorry that my personal tragedy momentarily inconvenienced you. My ears pick up now on the instructor who's now speaking in another language. And I go back to that living room where just a couple days ago, before I had had a conversation with another high school wrestling teammate named Pete. Pete's a couple years older than me and he's always been like a big brother to me. And he came over to check on me. And when I told him that, I didn't know if I was gonna be okay. And I, I didn't know how I was gonna get through this. He leaned over and he pointed at me and he said, Matt, no one gives a fuck about you. And no one is going to give a fuck about you the way that you need to give a fuck about you. See, I've gone to college, got a stable job, I saved money, I bought a house, I met a girl. I did everything that everyone told me that I was supposed to do. And in that moment, engaging my sit bones on a yoga mat, I realized that my life as I knew it was over. In this room full of scantily clad women and Lululemon, <laughs> I couldn't have been any more alone. And I was the only one that could help me. And that scared the shit out of me. And I started crying. Audible, full body sobs. <laughs> it was undeniable how loud I was crying. <laughs> the instructor was forced to stop her international prayer <laughs> and address it. And she comes over to me and with a hand on my violently shaking shoulder, <laughs> says, sometimes your practice can be so intense <laughs> that it brings out these emotions in you. And I wanna congratulate Matt on his practice today. <laughs> so now I have a line of all the hot girls in the yoga class coming up and patting me on the back while I'm crying and congratulating them. <laughs> so I waited for everyone to leave and then I left and I made sure to face the wall the whole way so that nobody else had to see me crying. And during that class, I received a couple text messages from a court officer that I worked with named Kevin. Kevin could always make me laugh. And I felt like I needed to talk to somebody. And in that moment, I probably should have called someone else. <laughs> but it was early, and I knew he was awake, so I called him. And I said, 
hey man, I just cried in a yoga class. I don't know what's wrong with me. And he says, you do yoga? I said, yeah, why? And he goes, ah, don't tell anyone. I hung up on him after he asked me if I have perfected the self-fellatio pose yet. I laughed. I laughed a little, but I started crying again, so I got off the phone. <laughs> but I got in my car, and I gripped the steering wheel, and I, and I said, how am I going to get through this day? And I didn't have an answer. But I made it through that day. And then the next day when I woke up, I asked myself again, how am I going to get through this day? I didn't have an answer. But I made it through that day. I was lucky enough to have friends and family that supported me. But what's been really hard for people that love me to understand is this, is that I don't get to go back to being that guy. That guy is gone. He died in that hotel room, sitting on a toilet, <laughs> looking at an iPad. With a lot of hard work, therapy, setbacks, like crying in other public places. <laughs> this situation changed from being something that happened to me into an opportunity that was given to me. Three years later, three years later, I got married. And uh, though I haven't stopped giving a fuck about myself, it feels amazing to have a partner, to be in love, to be able to give a fuck about someone else. Thank you. Sit or lie comfortably, quietly. Allow yourself to be here fully in this moment. With your eyes closed, begin to connect with your inner world of thought and feeling. Gradually, let the horseshit of the external world fade from your awareness. If you find your mind wandering to other thoughts, don't let it concern you. Just acknowledge that all that shit is fucking bullshit. Take in a deep breath. Now breathe out. Just feel the fucking nonsense float away. Take full, deep breaths. Breathe in strength. Breathe out bullshit. Greet the world and everything in it with a new, beautiful breath of fuck that. You know, a friend of mine once nicknamed me 
the united colors of Benetton. <laughs> Ever since I was a kid growing up in New York, I've been surrounded by a really diverse and beautiful circle of people. Um, both of my parents were from the West Indies, Jamaica to be exact. Growing up in New York, we first lived in what is called the projects. But back then, and I'll say it, it was the 60s, the projects were a lot different from how we've come to know them. Our neighbors and my schoolmates were black, white, Puerto Rican. My best friend in elementary school was Hungarian. So it was really like that melting pot for me. And being an adult here in California, things have pretty much stayed the same. Don't get it twisted, though. It's not like I've never been touched by racism, but I really try hard not to let those things bother me. I don't let them color, so to speak, my worldview. And I guess do I have to say it's been pretty challenging feeling that way the last couple of years in our country. But anyway, a couple of summers ago, I decided to take one of my trips to New York City because I just really needed some of that Jamaican family love. And as usual, I worked a full day before my flight. I packed at the last minute. Luckily, my sweetheart, Mi Amor, Alfonso was there to help me, and I had him drag my luggage up from an upper closet. Now, I had already smartly put together a bunch of piles of stuff to be packed, so he was able to just lay the stuff in the suitcase for me. Two hours, two or three hours of sleep later, and 3.30 in the morning, dark, we're on our way to LAX. Now, this was a 7 a.m. flight, and I don't usually fly that early, and it was packed. The plane was noisy. It was like <laughs> bumper-to-bumper traffic just trying to get to my seat. But about an hour into the flight, I'm comfortable now, and I noticed that a lot of the people on the plane around me are speaking Spanish. There was this um, lady in the aisle seat across, and she had this squirmy little toddler on her lap, but she looked friendly enough. So I decided to try out the little bit of Spanish I had been practicing with Alfonso. But um, <laughs> for whatever reason, that morning, all I could get out of my mouth was, ¿Cómo está, señora? And then she starts talking back, rapid-fire Spanish. And at this point, I just laughed. <laughs> but she was able to help me understand that a lot of the people on our flight were connecting in New York City and going on to Madrid. So anyway, I settle back in my chair, and then I catch the eye of the lady who's right next to me in the window seat. I started to open my mouth, but before I could even say hello, she whipped her head to the side and stared out the window. Now, I had thought I had imagined something before. When I was chatting in my little Spanish to the lady across the aisle, this woman, Miss Window Seat, had rolled her eyes and frowned up her skinny lips. I mean, I saw her out of the corner of my eye. I saw her. She was looking at me when she did it. <laughs> so did she have a problem with me? Did she have a problem with our Spanish-speaking cabin mates? Unfortunately, it reminded me of a time that I was walking with my mom near the beach, and these white boys, and they were young boys, they were boys, 
on their bicycles sped by us and yelled the N-word. Yeah, they, they really did. And many years before that, when I was a child in an all-black choir, this girl in the all-white choir that I was performing with frowned up and told her friend not to talk to me. <laughs> anyway, back to the plane. So about five hours later, we land in New York City. And as usual, there's the mad rush to get off the plane as soon as the fastened seatbelt light goes off. Miss Window Seat <laughs> couldn't even wait. She pushed past me to try to get out into the aisle. It's okay. Better time, better time, better time. For some reason, whenever I fly Delta to New York City, I always end up in the gate that's in the furthest regions of the terminal. And I swear that trek to the outside world and to baggage claim is like a three-quarter mile hike. I'm not in great shape. So by the time I get to the carousel, there are only a few people waiting and a few, more, a few bags coming around this carousel. I didn't see my bag. There was a bag that looked like mine, but it was the wrong color. I even laughed to myself because it had a pink ribbon just like mine too. But <laughs> even funnier was when I saw Miss Window Seat on the other side of the carousel. After all of her pushing and attitude, she was still there waiting for her bag just like the rest of us. But anyway, eventually it was just me and this wrong color bag going around the carousel. So I'm like, okay. I flagged down this Delta employee and I say, well, was there another carousel for the flight from Los Angeles? Nope, you're in the right place. <laughs> okay, so then where the heck is my bag? Now there's a lost luggage office and it's just a few feet away. So I walk over there and the lady behind the counter, she's really nice, she's friendly, even though I know she's done this a million and one times. So she types my claim number into her thing and um, says, well, miss, according to our records, your bag has arrived. <laughs> okay, then where the fuck was it? I mean, at this point, all she could do was give me the instructions, fill out this form, be sure that we have your local contact information, and when your bag shows up, we'll call you. But how likely is that? I mean, I'm thinking, if you say my bag is here, but it ain't here, then obviously somebody took my bag. I couldn't believe this. But what could I do? I fill out the stupid form and I go out to the um, ground transportation area. And I'm standing in this long ass line waiting for my turn at a taxi cab. And I'm fuming. I mean, I had a month's worth of daily wear contact lens in that suitcase. I only had a couple in my purse and in the mad midnight packing, <laughs> I had forgotten my backup glasses. Most all my clothes were in that suitcase. And all of my curly girl hair products, <laughs> the stuff that people, a couple of years before that, I had gone through the worst depression and the worst anxiety in my entire life. It was a really nasty divorce. And my hair fell out in fistfuls. I mean, even now, underneath this, it's just now starting to come back. 
in my bag was all the stuff that I needed to manage my half straight, part bald, part nappy, I said it, part nappy natural hair so that I could take off the damn wig. It was only nine o'clock in the morning and it was already so freaking hot out there. You know, my ears were still clogged from flying and all of a sudden, all the street noises seemed to disappear. And all I could hear is this thump, thump, which was actually my own heartbeat. And it seemed like it was getting louder and stronger. And I thought I was going to be sick. Something had been taken from me. And I knew who to blame. It must have been one of those Spaniards, one of those no English speaking foreigners who saw a bag that looked like theirs, took it and didn't check the claim ticket. And not only that, I just knew that I was gonna end up with one of those thick accent cab drivers from Ghana who wouldn't know shit about getting around the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> I couldn't believe this was happening to me. The line for the taxi was just crawling and you would think that might give me time to talk myself down, time to start thinking more logically and sensibly, but no. All I did was make up my mind to go back to the lost luggage counter and make that woman help me. So I get back there and she's still there. And I notice that there are a lot of suitcases lined up against the wall in her office, including that wrong color bag that looked like mine. So it's obvious to me that whoever that bag belonged to had taken my suitcase. And if we could just find that person, we could switch bags. I bet they're still here in the airport waiting for their connecting flight to Spain. So I asked the woman, can we open up that bag and see if maybe there's an ID inside because there was no tag on the handle? She claimed she couldn't do that. I begged her, please. So she kind of looks around as if to see if anybody's watching her. And she pulls the bag away from the wall and starts to unzip it. Now, as I start seeing things in the bag, I'm like, what the hell is this? She opens the bag all the way, and I could see everything that was packed on top. And there was my see-through plastic case with the 36 count boxes of contact lens. My blow dryer with the comb attachment. And my Curly Girl hair products. Conditioner, shampoo, mousse, edge control. It was my stuff. But how could that be? It was my suitcase. This off green, wrong color bag with the pink ribbon that looked like mine was my suitcase. But I was so sure that I had a black bag, that I had matching luggage. I was so sure. <laughs> so now the lady in the office is smiling. Well, she's laughing at me and she's saying something, but I can't hear her above the pounding of my heart. <sighs> On the cab ride going into Manhattan, I start trying to unpack what had just happened to me. I mean, 
sure, it was funny that I didn't recognize my own suitcase, that dead tired, packing in the dead of night, I didn't notice that I no longer had matching black luggage. That I couldn't remember that when I had gone to New York before, back in December, I had traded one of my black bags for my auntie's larger green bag so that I'd have more room to pack my Christmas presents. Yeah, it was funny that I didn't recognize or remember any of this, but I didn't recognize myself, and that wasn't too funny. I mean, who was that Ashton back there, that crazy, out of control with anger woman, so sure that something had been taken from me, and I jumped at somebody to blame, but not just one person, I denigrated an entire group of people. Me, Ashton, with the Mexican boyfriend and the Jewish business partner and the Jamaican immigrant family, some of whom have accents so thick, just like my cab driver from Ghana. I didn't roll my eyes or frown up my lips at anybody. I never had a chance to do that. And thank God, I never said any of the things I was thinking out loud. All of my hate had gone on in my mind. But I realized that's how it starts, isn't it? In our hearts and in our minds. When we buy into the lie that those others have taken something from us. Was I racist? Was I xenophobic? I don't know. But I know that I never want to see that Ashton ever again. And I am so, so sorry. Thanks for sticking with me. This is Risk. This is 
Our Native Daughters behind me now. I just discovered this album. It is so damn beautiful. Four African-American singer-songwriters got together uh, the Smithsonian African-American Legacy Project helped put this album together. And it is just gorgeous. Before that, we heard from Ashton Cynthia Clark, who you can find on Instagram at ashton.c.clark, with an E at the end. Before that, a little interstitial uh, by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, uh, ripped from a comedy sketch that Jason Headley put together. You know, meditation, guided meditation, with lots of expletives. I'm going to be making a big announcement soon, but I might as well, like, pre-mention it. Uh, I'm going to be creating some guided meditations, legit, not jokey, for people wanting to sit and ponder back, to meditate back on some of their memories, their life memories, for the sake of getting the juices flowing for storytelling. And I'm going to start doing Skype one-on-one sessions with people again for all sorts of purposes, uh, but mostly storytelling. But there were sometimes people who would write in that they were interested in just spending a half hour chatting with me about their sex life. <laughs> you know, So stay tuned for all that. If you're interested in learning any more about what I just said, you can always just email me directly at kevinatrisk-show.com and then stay tuned for a more official announcement about all that. Let's get to our final story today. This one was recorded a few years back, actually. It's been in our archives for a little while now. This is Kevin McGeehan, who shared this one at the Los Angeles Risk Show, and you can find him on Twitter at Kevin. Here he is now with a story we call Family Ghost. In October of 2006, three men decided to rob a bank. Their plan was very simple. They were going to scope out the parking lot of a SunTrust bank in Lawrenceville, Georgia. They were going to watch for the last person to leave the bank, probably the bank manager, and they were going to follow that person to their home where they would then break into the house, hold this person hostage, and then take them back to the bank the next morning where they would have unfettered access before anyone else arrived. Now, for these three guys, their plan was going wonderfully. They found a bank manager. They followed him back to his house. They got into his house, and the bank manager promised them that no one else was going to be there that night, that his wife was working the graveyard shift at the hospital, and that everything was going to be fine, that he would comply with their wishes. A few hours into them waiting out the night, a key jostles in the lock. And the door opens, and a man wearing brown flip-flops walks into the room. The bank robbers 
freak out, grab the man, throw him into a chair, cock a shotgun to his head, take his driver's license, and they call a third man off-site. And they say, there's a new player involved. What do we do? And the man who's off-site is very concise, and he says, kill him. He's done. Two days later, 350 miles away, I was standing in front of a man-made lake. I was holding this black box, and I was having a really emotional day. Uh, that day was the day that I was going to spread my mother's cremated remains. For the last three months, I had been living in my childhood home, cleaning out 30 years of memories. And if you've ever done that, it is one of the hardest 90 days I've ever spent where I was going up and down the emotional roller coaster. <clears throat> but one fun fact, if you ever have to do this, I guarantee at some point you're going to find cash. So, today was the final day of this, and I still had two promises I had to fulfill. The first promise was to spread her ashes. And there were three spots that she and I had chosen. My mother's name was Patty, and Patty and I prepared for this, and she had three specific places that she wanted me to spread them. One was in the front yard, uh, right by this tree that uh, we planted when we first moved in there, and now was a big grown tree. And, and uh, I just poured some of it right out of this bag into that. Then I went to the next place, which was the public library, which had a, uh, a brick that had her name inscribed in, in the sidewalk. And what I did was, what I found out illegally, I poured her cremated remains around the seams of the brick. Now I was at my third destination, which was this man-made lake at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Now, what was special about this lake was that she and I sat outside this lake many times and we'd talk about life and uh, every time we took her for an appointment and such. So this was a big moment. And I still had stuff in this bag. And I really felt like this moment needed some oomph. So I decided I wasn't just going to pour it because that just seemed eh, like nothing. So what I did was I took my hand and I put it directly into the bag of cremated remains and immediately regretted this decision. <laughs> when a body is cremated, it is such a high temperature that everything burns away except a few bones and teeth, which then go through a pulverizing procedure at the end. And as I reached in, I touched rocks and little things that all I could think was, oh God, that's bone or teeth. And I had no idea what to do and I wanted this just off me. So I just started throwing it without taking wind into account. And immediately it blew back on me and into my open mouth. I have no idea what to do. Cremated remains are like glitter. Once they're on you, good luck getting them off. So it's in my mouth, on my hand, and I don't know what to do. So I just lower my hand into the lake, clean it off, take it out, and then scrape all of it off my tongue, pour out the rest, walk away, give my mother a goodbye slash I'm sorry as I go back to my car. Now, I say this right now because many years, in this way, in a cavalier way, because many years have passed, but at the time, I can say, it kind of fucked me up, and I was in a really weird spot when I got back to my car, and at this point now, I had to fulfill my second promise, which was I had to call my Uncle Andy. 
Uh, my uncle Andy is my mother's youngest brother, and he is only six years older than me. So when he was born, he was immediately put in the charge of his 21-year-old sister, and for many years of his life, she raised him. And then when I was born, she essentially raised the two of us as brothers. But then uh, that eventually went away, but that's how our formative years were. We were not close. Now, Uncle Andy and I grew into very different men. He is a self-made millionaire many times over and a type A personality. And I am a guy who has worn the same boots for every day for the last eight years and loves doing improv games in my free time. <laughs> so we're very different men. And I was calling him because the promise that she asked me to make was that once she was gone, that he and I would stay in contact and he and I would be close because she was the conduit for the two of us. And I promised her that I would stay in contact with him. And I, I, I called him... Uh, right after to say, uh, I'm on my way to come visit you. I'm just now leaving. And he sounded weird on the phone. And I said, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm okay. I'll tell you when you get here. And at that point, I said, well, have I got a story for you? Because, oh, wait till you hear what just happened to me at this lake. Thinking at that point, whatever story, that this story was going to supersede anything he had to tell me. So I drive up the 350 miles uh, to his home, and when I arrive, uh, my aunt opens the door and she looks very sullen. She takes me into his office where he is sitting in his chair. We greet each other, do the perfunctory, how was your trip, questions. And then he sits me down and he tells me the following story. Two days earlier, he had gotten a call from his best friend's wife who was a nurse at a hospital who was doing a graveyard shift, and she called him to say that uh, she had not heard from her husband all night, and had he heard from him. And my Uncle Andy says, no, I've not heard from him. And she goes, well, can you go check on him? And he says, yes, of course, I would be happy to. He turns to my aunt, and he says, I'm going to go check on Josh. Uh, it's 45 minutes away. Uh, I am probably just going to stay over at Josh's house. I'll go to the office the next day and just shower and change. You go back to sleep. I'm not coming home tonight. My aunt says, okay and goes back to sleep. My uncle puts on a pair of brown flip-flops, walks out the door, drives to Josh's house, takes the spare key that he was given, walks into the door, is grabbed by a man wearing a scream mask, shoved into a chair, a shotgun is cocked to his head, and then the transaction begins. So, at this point, the bank robbers take his license from him and they read off the address to the man off-site. And they say to him, if you do not do what we say, then we will go, the man who is not here is going to go into your house and do the unspeakable to your family. So Uncle Andy complies with this request. And now the thing that saved his life was the fact that he also worked at that bank and he also had keys to that uh, so they could have even more access to it. So he essentially got saved by a two birds with one stone type scenario. So they wait out the night. And some of the details he told me from that that stood out to me so much that the guys were scream masked the entire night. The house was completely dark except for the illumination of the television that played ESPN all night. Uh, he, he guessed that these guys were like 24, 26. And at one point, as they were waiting out the night, somehow the topic got to fatherhood, and they all just kind of chatted about what it was like to be fathers. <laughs> the next morning, they get to the bank. Uh, they open up the bank. The bank robbers go in, and they have unfettered access to the safe. Then Uncle Andy and Josh's job is to sequester all of the bank employees as they are coming in into a conference room. This goes off without a hitch, except for one point where one of the bank robbers wanted to beat somebody up, but Andy talks him out of it. And then they finally leave. 
With $75,000 cash, they take Josh's truck, they drive away to a second location with a getaway car, and then they get in that car and then disappear. As I am listening to Andy's story, my aunt is next to me, crying hysterically. My uncle is telling it to me stoically. Yet I am sitting on the couch also crying, but to a lower level of hysteria as my aunt. And I say to him, are you okay? And this is when he changed. And like I said, my uncle is very stoic, and he is very type A, and he is very drive forward, get as much money as you possibly can. It doesn't really deal with emotions. But in this moment, he was completely overwhelmed, and he started saying that he was so scared. And the thing that scared him the most was that he just kept thinking, not two of us in one year, not two of us in one year. And at one point he said there was something about the fact that my mother was there with him and she kept him strong and it just, it was one of those things. And then at this point he just started weeping. And as I watched this man who I was not very close to for a long time, but because of her death we had gotten much closer as I'm watching him cry. I got up off the couch and I walked over to him and I hugged him and we were both just weeping into each other's arms. And I couldn't help but think that this was a wonderful way for me to say goodbye to my mother on this day because I was now fulfilling her wish because ever since then, he and I have been extremely close. And as he and I are crying, holding each other, because I cannot help it sometimes, as I pulled him away, I looked him right in the eyes and I said, Do you want to hear a story about how I got some of my mother in my mouth? (laughs) Thank you very much. is all for this week's episode folks this is jeff tweedy behind me now and we just heard from kevin mcgeehan now don't forget you can always find new information about where the next risk live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour now We're going to need you guys to be pitching us lots of new stories for 2020. We're going to need you to be telling your friends. And also, if you see stories out there, if you see a story in the news where someone's done something extraordinary or something extraordinary has happened to someone, 
alert us. Say, hey, this sounds like this could be an amazing risk story if this person was really dug into it. But let us know. You can always email me directly at kevin at riskdashshow.com or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, let's make the very best we can out of 2020. It is gonna be something. <laughs> Today's the day. Take a risk. Take a risk.